Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in the most favorite Torah portion of all. We are in Parshat Tazria. We are in the Parsha dealing with skin eruptions and uh, the same eruption that is on the skin was considered to be what was plaguing uh, a house if it was on the inside or it could be in fabric, it could be in yarn, um, it could be in lots of different things. So we are in a Parsha that's dealing with something called Sara'at. Uh, it is translated, as many of you know who have worked with me on this Parsha before, it is translated as leprosy. It is not leprosy. No worries, Barry. Um, we, it is not leprosy. It is not Hansen's disease. So why do we translate it as leprosy still in translations today, like the women's Torah commentary? Um, because there has been such an incredible stigma attached to leprosy, which is its own story, which I read in another book recently, kind of by accident, and I made it through a whole chapter of the book you gave me, which means I made a tiny, tiny little dent. Richard Rajay gave me a gift of a book that's this thick. I'm like, is that really a gift or is that kind of like... I don't know, like, like, you know, like a yoke that one puts over one's neck. So anyway, I was reading um, in Homodeus, the book by What's His Chops, the one who wrote Sapiens, um, that he was talking about leprosy and about how some diseases got um, supercharged, right, with this, um, with this stigma. And leprosy is one of them where they, you know, put people in a different colony um, in Hawaii and some other places where they made such a huge deal out of this skin disease um, because of how people looked and because of the way it caused people to wither. Um, we're not sure, but but lots of other diseases like smallpox, you know, like think of all the diseases that can kill you and disfigure you. Why leprosy is a whole story I won't bore you with. Um, but the reason the translation is left as leprosy is because it had this incredible stigma attached to it. And it was considered super contagious. Um, and people were put outside of society in order, if they had it in order to deal with it. And so people, I think wrongly, um, um, made a parallel between an equivalency between the way lepers were treated and the way that people were treated in uh, ancient Israel who had Sarat. Why do I think that's a fallacy? Because as we're going to see, uh, Sarat was not about physical contagion. They were not worried about physical contagion. They were worried about the contagion of ritual impurity. Those are very different things. Ritual impurity is why Sara'at is here. Sara'at renders one ritually impure. All through Leviticus, what we care about in Leviticus, the priestly agenda is to make sure Israelites understand what renders them impure and what has to be done 
in order to bring someone back into ritual purity. Because what the priest and the community is concerned about is the spread of ritual impurity. And then someone comes into contact with the sancta who is not pure and you spread ritual contagion. And if you spread ritual impurity contagion widely enough, what happens? You get COVID. No. <laughs> Nobody. Well, you you get assimilated. Nobody, nobody is left to be able to do the ritual. So, well, the presumably the kohanim, right, are gonna remain ritually pure. If they become impure, they're gonna they're gonna take care of it. If ritual impurity um, spreads, you get assimilated. <laughs> What happens if you if ritual impurity spreads too far is that God's presence cannot reside in the camp. God's presence cannot be where there is impurity. God is completely pure and therefore like magnets if you put right I forget what it is when you put them together and they repel each other, that's exactly what ritual impurity does to the presence of the divine. It repels it. That's just how life is. That's not an opinion. That's not this one's good. That one's bad. It's just science, people. (laughs) It's just science that if there's impurity, it repels the divine presence, which is only pure. So the concern is not with the person. It's not that something bad is happening to the person. It's that the person has to not spread their ritual impurity to a place and to a point where the divine presence will be repelled. Because if that happens, Israel is toast. Israel is vulnerable. Israel is now open to attack of all kinds. It is the presence of God that protects the camp, that protects the people. So all of the concern with the person with Sara'at is about not spreading Ritual impurity. That is why the person is isolated until the person is brought back into the camp through a set of rituals um, to deal with the moving them from the status of impure to pure. This happens with everybody. If you have a nighty mission as a man, you are impure until you go through whatever has to happen for you to become pure again. If you menstruate, you're impure. If you have a child, you're impure. So the becoming impure is not a bad thing. We've talked about this a lot, but I want to make sure people who are new, who are joining us, who are hearing that word, get it. It is not a bad thing. Life moves. And we're going to look at Rabbi Jonathan Sachs when we're done with the text. We're going to look at a beautiful um, uh, talking about this by Jonathan Sachs. Um, so the so ritual impurity is not a bad thing. It is the state one is in when one does certain parts of life. Period. So how one defines what makes one ritually impure, there are lots of scholars who argue about that. I am someone who agrees with the scholars, and Rabbi Jonathan Sachs is going to say the same thing, that moments or or circumstances of contact with death in life render one other, different, unregular. To be in the presence of the sacred, one needs to be regularized. So when one has had a baby, one is not in a regular state. One is not, right? Now, if you're going to say, how does that relate to death? The baby, first of all, the baby could die. That was absolutely understood. Mom could die. 
So just having a child meant you were in proximity to death. If you menstruate, there is a baby that is not born and is your egg is shed along with the lining of the uterus. So it was understood this is the blood of not having had a baby. A seminal emission at night means seed that is wasted, seed that will die, right? It won't become a baby. So that renders the man ritually impure because it's contact with death. Okay, so death in life is not a bad thing. We are the highest communicator of ritual impurity is what? Highest, highest. Corpse contamination. If corpse contamination is the highest form of ritual impurity, highest form, the biggest contaminator we have, it's a seven-day process to come back from that. If that's the biggest contaminant we have, we are commanded to bury the dead. So if you're commanded to bury the dead and you're commanded to become impure, impurity can't be a bad thing. It just is a thing. It's a part of life. Having contact with a body that was once alive and is now dead renders one other. And if you've ever been in a room with a human corpse, you know what I'm talking about. You are just not regular. When you're sitting with a dead body, you are, you don't come out of that regular. You just don't. Um, and remember, it was family that was commanded to bury their dead. So it was family who was going to have contact with the body. And if you've been with the body of someone from your family or someone you love dearly, it, it, it is massively otherizing. You are just not normal, right, Lisa? You're just not normal. That's, that is to be, according to our tradition, that is to be respected. That is to be honored. You don't ask somebody to do the regular bringing of sacrifices and the regular ritual and the regular everything and being around a ton of people going to the temple. You don't ask them to do that when they're in a state of otherness, when they're in a state of having had contact with death. You don't ask them to do regular life when they are dealing with some kind of contact with death. For us as moderns, we see this as stigmatizing. For them, it was an understanding that there are moments in life that need to be respected and that people's status as having been impacted change. So I guess they're saying here in the chat that do I need to talk about this with B'nai Mitzvah kids? Yes, I do. Yes, I have to teach this to B'nai Mitzvah kids. And then it's like, okay, so where do we go with that? Guess what? They have no problem. Once I explain what this is about, they have absolutely no problem getting it. And often they'll jump to, we treat people as, because I talk about, you know, a skin disease would have been apparent, you know, whatever tsara'at is, would have been apparent. And they get it like this, the bat mitzvah, the bat mitzvah tomorrow is going to be talking about how we judge people for how they look. And she says, we all know we're not supposed to, and we all do it anyway, right? And she says, I'm in middle school, <laughs> right? Need I say more, she says in her speech, you know, that we sum somebody up right away by how they look, right? And so they they get this, that, you know, that we we do this in a way that they didn't in the ancient world, Right. Did it trigger for them a whole bunch of stuff about impurity and we don't want that spreading? Absolutely. But let's look at the text because we'll see 
it's different than, and she was also talking not just about summing up people for how they look and how they dress, but also anybody who appears physically different, right? That we want to look, what do we do? You know, we look away. We don't want to see it. So let's look at the text because the text itself is going to be an answer to, to that tendency, that impulse. Um, okay. All right. So we're starting at Leviticus 1330. If a man or a woman has an affection, so we're talking about nega. So, so there's lots of kinds of nega, right? So, you know, you can have an eruption and you don't know what it is. So nega does not mean sara'at. Nega means there is an affection on the skin. And now we have to deal with what is it? So nega just means an eruption, uh, an affection. And people keep telling me that's not a word. I'm like, it's right there. It's right there. JPS agrees with me. All right. So the, okay. So somebody has an affection on the head or in the beard. It's all over the body that this can happen. We're just in a specific part of this uh, Parsha that's talking now about specifically on the head or in the beard. The priest shall examine the affection. The priest literally will look at the nega. Like looking at its appearance. If it's deep, deeper than the skin. And there is in it a yellow hair that's thin. The priest shall pronounce the person impure. It is a skull, a scaly eruption in the hair or beard. Tamar Kamienkowski says, possibly this is if you have a blonde or white hair in a culture where what color is their hair? Black. Then it's other enough that it's like, okay, something's going on there. When every, there's nobody who's blonde, right? You know, it's like, if somebody there has something that's, that's, you know, yellow or white and you, everyone has black hair, it's like, whoa, okay, that's massively different. But if the priest finds that the skull affection does not appear to go deeper than the skin, yet there is no black hair in it, the priest shall isolate the person with the skull affection for seven days, right? So there's not a normal colored hair in it. Then they are isolated for seven days. On the seventh day, what does it say? You keep seeing examine. Don't read examine. Read look. The The priest looks at the affection by Yom Hashvi'i on the seventh day. And if the skull has not spread and no yellow hair has appeared in it, and the skull does not appear to go deeper than the skin, the person with the skull shall shave. But without shaving the skull, the priest shall isolate the person for another seven days. How does verse 30, whatever this is, 34 start? The priest shall look at the skull and if the skull on the seventh day, and if the skull has not spread and does not appear to go deeper than the skin, the priest shall pronounce the person pure. After washing those clothes, that person shall be pure. If, however, now this is two weeks, okay? So think of COVID quarantine, right? Didn't we have COVID quarantine for two weeks? If you're not sure if it's COVID, you quarantined for two weeks. If, however, the skull should spread on the skin after the person has been pronounced pure, the priest 
The priest will look at him. If the skull has spread on the skin, the priest need not look for yellow hair. The person is impure. But if the skull has remained unchanged in color and black hair has grown in it, the skull is healed. The person is pure. The priest shall pronounce that person pure. If a woman, if a man or a woman has a skin of the body streaked with white discolorations, and the priest looks, and behold, right? There are discolorations on the skin of the body. They're dull white. It's a tetter broken out on the skin. That person is pure. If a man loses the hair of his head and becomes bald, he is pure. If he loses the hair on the front part of his head and becomes bald at the forehead, he is pure. But if a white affection streaked with red appears on the bald part in the front or at the back of the head, it is a scaly eruption that is spreading over the bald part in the front or the back of the head. The priest, what? The priest will look. If the swollen affection on the bald part in the front or the back of the head is white streaked with red, um, like Sarat, right? You, you can read leprosy if you want, because I've talked about why they leave this interpretation there, but it's Sarat of body and skin and appearance. He is Sarua. He has Sarat. He is impure. The priest shall pronounce him impure. He has the affection on his head. As for the person with a leprous infection, like a tsara'at affection, the clothes shall be rent, the head shall be left bare, and the upper lip shall be covered over. And that person shall call out, tame, tame, right? Impure, impure. The person shall be impure as long as the disease is present. Being impure, that person shall dwell apart in a dwelling outside the camp. When an eruptive affection occurs in a cloth of wool or linen fabric, in the warp or in the woof of the linen or the wool or in a skin or in anything made of skin, if the affection in the cloth of the skin in the warp or the woof or in any article of skin is streaky green or red, it is an eruptive affection, it shall be Shown to the priest. Verse 50. Vira'aha Kohen. And the Kohen looks. And the priest, after examining it, shall isolate the affected article for seven days. This goes on and on and on and on and on. All right. So why do I keep hollering about Vira'aha Kohen? The priest looks. Why am I emphasizing that so much? So it is a physical examination. No, it is, but it's not as... It's done by a priest and not a physician. Okay. So, so it's done by the, it's done by the priest. It's done by the big kahuna, literally, right? Kahuna comes from Kohen. <laughs> this is why you come to Torah study, people. <laughs> the things you learn. Um, so the big kahuna, Right is called if there's a concern that it is sara'at. So what are they not concerned about? They are not concerned about the medical condition. They don't call the physician. Who do they call? They call the priest. Because what is the concern? The concern is impurity contagion. That is the concern. If you're concerned about impurity, who are you going to call? 
<laughs> you're gonna call the big kahuna, right? You're gonna call the priest who is the expert, not in medicine. You're calling the priest who is a uh, professional in diagnosing conditions that render one impure. Okay, so that's number one. It is not medical. They're not worried about it being contagious medically. We can assume they understood if you have smallpox and are around somebody else, they're not stupid. They would have seen that people near somebody got sick. We can assume they understood physical contagion. That is not what is the concern here. Or or you call the physician. I'm not saying that the the body and the, and the, and the spirit were, were not related. They are. We see that here, but it's not worrying about is this something that's going to be contagious physically to other people? I'm concerned about the affection in the cloth. Okay. So we're going to get there. Um, but remind, if I don't remind me. So the, so the, 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 the issue is ritual impurity. You call the expert in purity and impurity. You call the priest. Why do I keep hammering? Because what do we want to do when we think something might be impure, contaminating, we don't want to look. We don't want to see. We don't want to be near it. What does the priest have to do? Has to look. The priest has to very closely look. The When someone dies, we sit shiva and the person, uh, the relatives wear a black cloth, which is torn. Which, and I'm relate, want to relate that to comfort or whatever one does to the relatives of death and, imp, and impurity. The tearing of the clothes is not about comfort. No, it's to tell others that you are, and that you are in a state of something. So sort of, the, the rending of the clothes is about doing physically what's happened already emotionally. One has been torn. One's family has been torn. So then one physically tears one's clothing as an act. We don't, it doesn't say that. We don't know that. So what we know is you, you physicalized as a sign of grief, as a sign of tearing, as a sign of what's happened. You tear what you're wearing when you get the news. Yes. Yes. But no, I thought it was also. To tell others that so we we believe that is one of the things that it did is that it indicated to others that you were in mourning. Yes, and and uh, the sitting shiver others come to the house. Are you in a state? They can't. I'm sure they can't hear him. When you sit shiver, others come to the house. Right. Is that then? And we assume the family has seen or touched the. Nobody is pure anymore. Okay, that's there's the no purity anymore because we don't have any of these rituals anymore and we don't have a temple. No one can get purified anymore. Well, no, no, no. Okay, but he's asking, he's saying, my, my understanding of what he's asking is you're going into a house where people have had communication with the dead, therefore they are impure. Right. They're, everyone's impure now. There's no temple, there's no way to purify. We can't bring sacrifices. We can't bring hyssop. We can't bring the things that make us pure. Nobody's pure anymore. Purity is irrelevant now. There's no, there's, there's no temple to keep pure. 
There's no Mishkan. There's nothing to keep pure, right? All right. I love this commentary by the Mesha Chochma, Rabbi Meir Simcha of Dvinsk. The word vera'ahu, which we just saw in our text, that the priest will see it, right? The priest will look at it, literally can mean we'll look at him, right? It is masculine, and so it can mean we'll look at him. Means that the Kohen is to appreciate the wholeness of the person in front of him, seeing more than just the diseased part of the body. He is to see what is whole and healthy about the person, not only what is afflicted. Before seeing what is impure, the Kohen must acknowledge what is holy in the individual before him. So this is a commentary, right? But you can see the dates, 1843 to 1926 is the, is the, um, is the time that this person lived, Rabbi Meir Simchav Dvinsk. But, but there's this understanding of translating the priest will see it as the priest will see him. The priest will see a person, not an affliction. That first the priest must see the person and understand that they're dealing with a person and to look at the person and then diagnose what's going on with the person which I love, right? Because that's because that's what we don't want to do. We don't want to see a person. We want to see AIDS. We don't want to see that it's a person who has AIDS. Do you remember? Do you remember the stigma? AIDS was the only thing that mattered. It didn't matter that it was an eight-year-old wanting to play on the playground, right? It was, All that mattered was AIDS, not the person who has AIDS, right? And so when we talk about um, the homeless, right? You know, a lot of us have been schooled to say, no, it's people experiencing homelessness. They're not the homeless, right? They're, they're not, there's homeless. There's Peter who was experiencing homelessness. It's, and it's, an, it's, a, it's a meaningful distinction because is it a person who has something that they're dealing with right now? Or are you going to categorize and completely determine who somebody is by something that's going on for them, right? And then um, Rabbi Mordechai Kamenetsky says, if one goes to the Kohen and learns to utilize the impairing experience to grow, to become more patient, more understanding, and perhaps more sensitive to others, then the hindrances that he or she experience may be troublesome. They may even be disheartening. They may even be like a handicap, but they are truly not. Because the handicap is only in the mind, and what is on the body is only like a blemish that can fade away. So this is a commentary on the fact that the person has to have contact with the priest. So it's about, okay, like uh, that I can get it, that in this state, and I'll tell you, when I was in the hospital recently, I was a friggin' disaster. I was a mess, people. I was a mess. I couldn't stop crying. The minute a doctor started talking to me about something, I was crying. Like my kid looked at me like, what is going on, right? And, um, and I will tell you, when a rabbi came to see me, and she came and stood by the side of my bed. It was qualitatively different, my interaction with her, right? She stood by my bedside and saw me as a person. And I had something which meant, and I'm going to get graphic just for a second, and I'll leave it. I, all I talked about was poop for five days. 
all anybody wanted to talk to me about was my poop. Every single person who walked in the room talked to me about my poop. That's all I was laying in that bed with somebody who pooped. The rabbi came to talk to me and came to talk to me as a person who was suffering from something that was manifesting as being something that was involving my excrement. It was a qualitatively different interaction. And I could tell which doctor was looking at me as a being that poops or and that's it, right? A collection of symptoms or if they were seeing me as a person who was suffering from something that was involving, right? My colon and my body. It was, it was a profound learning for me. And what our commentators are suggesting is it's the priest who's called, not the doctor. Davka the priest, not the doctor. And the other thing they stress is that, that the, the priest is not trying to cure the person. Notice the priest is just there to identify what's happening for the person. The priest is not there to change anything. It's not like, uh-oh, you've got sara'at, let's rush you to the mikvah. Let's, let's make you pure. That is not what's happening. The priest is just asked to acknowledge what, what reality is. Um, the priest is just diagnosing what reality is and then is doing with the person whatever that requires. And if it requires isolation, that's what is required until the nega is gone or it changes to a certain other set of, you know, appearances. And then all of the rituals that are going to be needed, the priest will, will facilitate. All right. So the other thing that's very interesting that Tamara Kamienkowski points out in her commentary for the wisdom commentary, which is a women's commentary uh, on the, Torah, this is, uh, she did the volume on Leviticus. One thing she points out is that it's not until the priest declares someone impure that they are impure. She's saying it is not Sarat that renders the person impure. It's the priest declaring that it is Sarat that renders the person's not impure until that moment. Until the priest says, this is Sarah, you are impure, the person's not impure. So it's an interesting thing that it's not even that Sarat itself alone that renders someone impure. It's the priest diagnosing the condition. So if the priest is called and the priest has to look closely, this works directly against, uh-oh, that person has whatever, get them out they don't matter as much anymore. You're calling the big kahuna to go to where someone is and look carefully every seven days, which sends the opposite message. You're taking the person who represents purity, ritual purity in the camp, and you're sending them to someone who might be pretty seriously, ritually impure. And you're asking them to look closely at that person. And if it's not sure, I'm coming back in seven days and I'm going to check. And if it's, if it's clear that you have Sarat, I'm coming back to check. Are you getting better? Right. Is, is it healing? Is it not healing? Has your status changed? And then I will do what is necessary as the priest 
to, to formally change your status and do all of the rituals needed to bring you back into the camp. Is the looking just with the eyes? Because it doesn't say don't touch. And I would assume that maybe there's touching is okay. That it's just a, uh, the Hebrew word. Is it just looking with yeah. the eyes or is it broader? It's looking. It's physically looking. So, I mean, I, I, I so would they find could it, pick up an arm. I, I, mean, I would it, find it hard to believe that if you're really going to try to examine something, you wouldn't touch right, the person. Right. So it's not about don't touch this person. Right. Well, you, right. Well, you don't want to touch the person if they are declared ritually impure because then you spread the, um, the ritual impurity. So Dr. Kamienkowski tells us 39 times the word the priest will look appears. 39 times the word to look appears in this business. If, if that isn't some kind of indicator of, you know, how much one is supposed to be looking, I, right? And, I, I, and paying careful attention, I don't know what is. So the fact that the same term is used for a condition on both human skin and on fabric bolsters the argument that this condition has nothing to do with skin. So for them, the fact that it could appear on the wall or in fabric means that it is not by definition something that's about the skin or about flesh. It's about something that can contaminate lots of different surfaces. They did not understand, obviously, that those are not the same thing um, because they looked similar, one could imagine. If one imagines this kind of thing on the skin that if you think about psoriasis or something like that, mold can look similar in the way it can affect either, um, remember their, their walls were often of uh, clay, you know, like, uh, yeah, stucco, mud, right? So then you, you can imagine something that's a mold that's in that could look similar to what it looks like on dark skin in the ancient Middle East, Yeah. Um, and same with fabric. Now, what Kamienkowski points out is if it's in the warp or the woof, who's going to know about that? The women. The women are the experts. You think men are going to know from a warp or a woof? <laughs> right? So it is the women who were the ritual experts in identifying if maybe a piece of cloth or a skein of yarn or something in the process of being made might have sara'at. It would have been the women who would have been the ones to identify that and then to call the priest, right? Presumably to alert somebody that, that the priest had to be called. Um, all right. So, all right. Is there anybody who has anything at home that you want to say? Sounds like my visit to the homeopathy clinic, half an hour of conversation about life 10 minutes of talking about the reason you came in. Thank you, Barry. Right. So because a practitioner who doesn't separate our physical selves from our whole selves doesn't just ask about the affection. They ask, how are you sleeping? What are, have you, have you changed your diet? Are you under a lot of stress? How are things at home? Right. Because any practitioner worth their salt who's holistic is going to understand that you can't possibly begin to understand what's happening with the body if you don't address what's happening with 
the person. They are absolutely related. They are absolutely influence, influencing each other this way and that way. And that if you're, if you're a practitioner who's going to actually be a part of the solution, you better be asking about something more than just the symptoms. I understand that most medical, medical schools now also are offering or insisting on every student taking a class and dealing with the whole person. Finally. Whether it takes or not is one thing, but finally. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I'm not terribly hopeful given our, uh, given our, um, what am I saying? Our culture, given our Western medical culture. God willing, it's going to happen someday. So why am I not going to talk about Lushen Hara? All right. So if we're talking about this condition and we're talking about it rendering people impure, it was a pretty serious business. You were removed from the camp. It was it was very serious, the, the condition. So the rabbis want to go to why would somebody get Sarat? And they want to go to, it's about sin. That's where they want to go. Because remember, if you're dealing with why do terrible things happen to good people, they, they have to answer that question. And like, we don't have to the way they did, but they needed to answer that question. So their answer is Sarat is clearly a spiritual affliction because one has committed a spiritual wrong. And this is the manifestation of that. And they want to go to that. It's about gossip. It's about evil speech. Why don't I want to go there? Why am I not going to bring you all this rabbinic commentary on? It's really about how we behave in the world. Why don't I want to go there? (laughs) First of all, I don't believe it. Yeah, because you, you, you don't believe there's a God does that. So I don't believe God does that. That's number one. Number two, it is completely misinterpreting what's going on in Leviticus. It's turning Sarad into something that Leviticus didn't do. Leviticus does not attach it to sin. Leviticus says, shit happens. If you're a human being, and let me tell you, having been in the hospital, I tell you, shit happens, right? So, um, then it can land you in the hospital if it's happening way too much. So it's, that's just what happens. Leviticus does not put a judgment on it. It's the opposite. Leviticus says, go get the person most responsible, most emblematic of ritual purity and have that person go outside the camp to where this person is to check on them, to see to look carefully and closely and care for that person and then do everything that's necessary to bring them back home when it's done. And it's a public ritual. They are back in the camp. Go challenge the priest who says, I say they're back. I say they're fine now. You go, right? You go challenge that regular Israelite And the rabbis make a move that I can't stand, that they now make somebody with Sarat a sinner. I don't like that move. And it's completely counter, I think, to the message of Leviticus, which says everybody who has a body 
is subject to sarat or to a night emission or to menstruation or to childbirth. It's going to happen to every single one of us. And to make it somehow about sin to me is a move that is directly oppositional to the message of Leviticus. And on a broader sense, there are people who believe that sickness is a punishment for having sinned. Correct. And there, there's all kinds of horrible things that happens in that, that if someone has cancer, that they must have done something wrong. And that's a terrible thing for people to believe, and particularly children who have, you know, when children get taught that God punishes, I mean, for people who teach that kind of a thing, right. which we don't, uh, the sense that, oh, my God, that person is poor. They must be punished because of X, Y, and Z. Right. And, and for me, it goes, it goes beyond even, um, what, when you say that it, it must be God who, who delivered this because, you know, the person is sinful. Like, what about everybody who says, Oh, you have cancer? Fill in the blank for me. What do they say? Because you did X, Y, and Z. What? You smoked, you. But forget wrong. What? Tell me, you have, you have, haven't you heard people who say, oh, well, they have cancer? That's because what? Yeah, they did. It's their fault. They, they chose the wrong <laughs> parent. It's their fault because their lifestyle. Their right? lifestyle. Did they ever smoke? Wait, people want to go right to, oh, well, they're so angry. Obviously, if they would let go of some of that anger, they won't, they wouldn't have had a heart attack. There, I mean, it isn't even just God. It isn't even just sin. It's people want to find a reason that people have stuff because then I don't have to worry about it. If this person was in control of being able to get cancer or not, then I can be too. But if you just say cancer happens because we sit on carcinogens and we consume carcinogens and we put them on our face before we go to sleep at night, then I'm not safe. And so, so much of blaming people who have something going on, right, is about so people can feel safe because that's not going to happen to me, right? And so that, and that to me is what Leviticus is saying is, is not, that's not the case. None of us is secure. None of us is safe from Sara'at. None of us is safe from cancer. And guess what? None of us is safe from death. That's the ultimate message, I think. None of us is safe from death, and we have to deal with it in life. Um, so Dana's saying she thinks it's a survival instinct that we ask why. I don't think it's a survival instinct necessarily. I think it's a way to feel like one has control over one's survival. That Accidents happen. Are we supposed to be careful when we get to the edge of a cliff? Yes, of course. And, and that is a survival instinct to like be, right? To be cautious. But like to say, well, that person, you know, that building fell on that person because it's a way to feel safe that one isn't going to get touched by what happened to that person. Is that a survival instinct? Maybe. Make plans and make God laugh. Right. Man plans, God laughs. Apparently it rhymes in Yiddish. If Sarah were here, I would ask her to say it, but it um, it's like, you know, it rhymes in Yiddish. Um, All right. So look at your sheets. Those of you who are here. And so we're going to go to Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. 
Leviticus teaches us not to deny death or try to evade it by distraction or immersion in work or pleasure. Rather, we act every day to increase life and to extend it through our activities. This is our part in humanity's long-term project to make this world the common, meaning the regular, into a holy realm where life is triumphant and increasing. However, when mortality inevitably comes in the form of death or its symbolic surrogates, such as a wasting disease, we acknowledge it. We temporarily yield to it. Then, in partnership with the priests and the realm of the holy, we reaffirm life in ritual and in life behaviors. Thus, we do our share in the ongoing task of improving the mundane, increasing life's presence, and turning the mundane into the holy. Written by someone with cancer. Written by someone with cancer. Um, so I'm not sure whoever brought this onto the sheet on Safaria then um, talks about Ernest Becker. So I, I would credit it, but I'm not sure who it is. In his Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Denial of Death, Ernest Becker argued that our awareness and fear of death leads us to create civilization as a process of denial of death. Becker suggests that many pathologies are driven by the denial mechanism. I'm sure Mark is going to have a field day here. This includes various forms of addiction, including drugs to escape the anxiety in the face of death. Others try to ignore the issue by tranquilizing themselves through preoccupation with the trivial aspects of living. Do you know people who you say, how are you? Oh my God, I'm so busy. And they're happy when they say it, right? You know, it's like, I am so, that's how I, that's how you are is busy. Right. Okay. That's an answer to a different question. (laughs) Right. Am I right, George? Yes. Here are psychologists here. The most destructive acting out may be the immortality projects. And this struck me so much watching the news these days by, by which humans imagine they or their handiwork can find a permanent existence. On the one hand, this drive for immortality leads to the creation of much of civilization. However, often this drive turns into the megalomania of totalitarian movements of world transformation or into bigotry, racism, wars, and even genocide as world leaders deny their own mortality through mega projects that all too often inflict suffering and loss of life and freedom on millions. In a way, our Torah portions are offering a prophylactic to the phenomenon of denial of death. Death is acknowledged, incorporated into life, but it is then matched and even overcome by constant modest acts of renewing life and building a realm of holiness. Each individual purification or renewal may seem puny by comparison to the vast sea of death and mortality. However, collectively, Millions of acts of life affirmation, generation after generation, add up to a healthy and human scale build and human scale building of life in this world. Yes or yes. (laughs) 
Each individual purification or renewal may seem puny by comparison to the vast sea of death and mortality. Don't we feel that way a lot? Like, what is my little piece going to help? What? Why should I bother to recycle? <laughs> right? However, collectively, millions of acts of life affirmation, generation after generation, add up to a healthy and human scale building of life in this world. So we can either say what we do is too puny and doesn't matter because it's all so big. Or we can say, if we are committed to doing our small acts of life affirmation over and over and over millions of us over generation and generation and generation, yeah, it's not as big as death, you know, and whatever. And yet, right, it creates a realm of holiness. It creates the possibility, right, of, of sanctifying this experience that is shot through with suffering and shot through with moments of death in life. Because what's the alternative? Spend your life dying. The alternative is to be a megalomaniac to deny death. There was a, I, I forget, excuse me, who it was, which rabbi this was, said he had two pieces of paper in his two pockets. In the Talmud, right, that you put, you put two, two quotes from the tradition, one in each pocket. You, when you're feeling haughty and proud, um, and like a big shot, like a macher, you pull out the piece of paper that says, from dust was I created to dust will I return. When you're feeling puny and small and insignificant and unable to accomplish anything in this universe because it's all too big for us, then you pull out the piece of paper that says, for me was the entire world created. So that we're supposed to balance, right? That we're supposed to understand that it's the both and. And, and that we are, our job is to figure out how to treat each of those conditions, haughtiness, pride, because that can lead us to terrible things. So we have to correct for that. And then how to, but also feeling like we are insignificant and can't achieve anything and aren't worth anything is not helpful at all. It's, it's actually very damaging. And so we have to pull out the other piece of paper. And, we're, and that's, you know, I think where Bert was pulling that from was this idea that Sachs is saying that, you know, the, the reality is we are both living creatures and dying creatures. And what is the, the Buddhist teaching that I read recently? It was reminded of recently in, in an article in the Buddhist magazine. It was that um, we, it's not that we are healthy or sick. We are beings who are always at the precipice of getting sick because we're, we're all going to get sick. So we're, we're all, we're all always beings on the edge of being human beings who are ill. All of us. And we're all human beings who are on the edge of dying. We're all going to die and we're all decaying even as our cells are rejuvenating. And, and it said death has to happen for our cells to regenerate, right? If cells don't die, there's, you know, if some things don't die and get washed out, you don't have the rejuvenation of new cells and new stuff coming in. I will close with the words of uh, Devorah Weisberg, who says about the priest bringing the person back into the camp. Our communities include individuals who, for one reason or another, feel isolated. We cannot ignore these people or contribute to their feelings of estrangement. Fear of their afflictions is no excuse for causing them further pain. Just as the priest goes out to meet the mitzvah, 
so too we must reach out to those in our midst who have been excluded, drawing them back into a caring community. And for us, of course, we know this is not about physical, just physical things that have us separate people, but people who feel estranged, people who feel isolated from our community. And I, I think for us as, as progressive Jews, as liberal Jews, this is absolutely critical um, for us to remember that this, that, that is our sacred obligation to be on the lookout, to see, to look for who feels marginalized, who feels silenced, who feels less than, who feels, and in our community, it's not Jewish enough, not observant enough, not worthy. This isn't for me because I'm not really fill in the blank. One of them, Jewish, what? Whatever. This is our work as a sacred community is to constantly be looking, not just if it's brought to our attention, but to constantly be looking people who are elderly and are stuck at home, people who are ill and therefore aren't in the normal circulation of things. And again, having been through my recent experience, how long that can go on, not just the critical illness, but the the not being strong enough to get in the car, the not being trusting enough that you can make it two hours in travel time because of your physical symptom, whatever it is, it's like that, that we, that we be aggressive in looking for those who are somehow left out and might feel apart and might feel estranged. And it's our job to make sure they feel seen, that they feel included. And this is a lot of the work that, um, that our amazing group can caring does by always writing a note to somebody who's ill or has had an accident or, you know, is somehow at home that, you know, Ivy Green and her amazing team that put together baking hamantashen for our sages so that they feel included. Um, and the, the hamantashen and the Mishloach Manot were left on people's doorsteps to say, you belong to us. We see you, we value you, and we will come to you to show you that the priest goes to the person and says, you matter to us. You belong to us. So may we all, um, may we all be vigilant and may we all figure out ways to push ourselves past where it's convenient um, to include those who can so often feel somehow outside of life and of our sacred community. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.